morning, everyone. Uh, thank you, Miss Stephanie. I appreciate that. We are so glad that you are here this morning, those who are in person and those who are online and those who are in warmer places but are normally with us, but uh, they are smart and they go to warmer places uh, during the winter. Um, let's just put it out there. I don't normally sound like a frog, but I have a common cold. And I got through the first service. We're trusting we'll go through the second service. But we have a backup plan. Right, Pastor Steph? We're about the same height and we wear glasses. You'll never know. So every once in a while, I'll have to take a sip. Don't mind me, okay? All right. So several years ago, I was working with a new student group at Bethel University. And I was sharing a bit about my journey, and I wanted them to know that they could ask me any question that they wanted, because there's no dumb questions, right? Well, one student said, because I refer to being from New York, and one student said, well, I know that there are five boroughs in New York. There's Manhattan, there's Queens, there's Staten Island and Brooklyn. Is the Bronx a nickname for Brooklyn? Right? That was a dumb question. And I said that. And then I proceeded to answer the question saying that Brooklyn and Bronx are two different boroughs. I admit it was not a pastoral response. <laughs> Fortunately, I've become dear friends with this young lady and we're actually neighbors. And just in case you needed to know the five boroughs that make up Manhattan, uh, New York City, that's that right there. So. When I look at this passage of scripture I'll be sharing to you with today, I was struck by the dumb question James and John asked Jesus. And I'm so glad that Jesus is full of grace and he didn't give them the side eye. And that he had a pastoral response, unlike me. But we've all been in this situation where we're in a classroom or a meeting and a question is asked, and even though the information was just explained. I've done it. I've been that person. But these questions are sometimes because a person really isn't listening. This is why they ask. Or maybe they misunderstood the content. I do realize it's not always about asking dumb questions. Sometimes we're asking the wrong question. In a world where we are told we need to be the center of the story, living as a Jesus follower can be tough because it's asking different questions. The disciples who were not, were not listening well as they were traveling with Jesus did not ask the right question. So I want to talk about what leads up to the passage I'm going to focus on today, where Jesus is talking to his disciples about his impending death, and they're on the way to Jerusalem. So between chapters 8 and 10, this is what's happening. And he brings the topic up of his death 
and resurrection three times. But the disciples are totally clueless and they're really not getting it. So, first conversation. Jesus, uh, I should say, Peter couldn't accept the fact that Jesus was talking about his suffering, death, and resurrection. So, Peter has the nerve, the audacity to pull Jesus aside and say, you can't talk about that. And Jesus has to rebuke him. Remember that scripture, get behind me, Satan? You were thinking of only human concerns. But Jesus had a beautiful pastoral response. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Next, in chapter 9, in Mark, second conversation goes like this. Jesus, once again, he refers to his death and resurrection on the third day. The disciples begin to then discuss who was the greatest. What does that have to do with my death and resurrection? I don't know, but they start talking about it. Of course, Jesus had a beautiful pastoral response. Anyone who wants to be the first must be the very last and a servant of all. And then Mark 10, the chapter we're going to talk about today. Third conversation. Jesus is talking to them about being brought for the chief priests and condemned to death. Now, Jesus gave them just a little bit more information, a little bit more of a descriptive of what was going to happen this time. But then John and James asked Jesus, if I can sit on the left and the right side of the kingdom, what that has to do with anything? I don't know. I think they thought, okay, if you're like really the Messiah, you give us more information. Hey, this is what we'll do. This is what we'll ask. Jesus' pastoral response. He says instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servants. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's really interesting that these chapters are, these pastoral lessons given by Jesus are bookend by stories of blind men who were healed spiritually and physically. One was in Bethsaida, chapters 8, and then blind Bartimaeus in later in chapter 10. These stories, I believe, are strategically placed by Mark because it resembles how the disciples, they couldn't see what Jesus was trying to teach them. And why couldn't they see that? That's the question. Why couldn't they see what Jesus was doing or what Jesus was saying? The reality is sometimes we can't hear or see what Jesus is doing because of all the clutter and noise in our own life. The world clamors for our attention, and the distractions are real. They're everywhere. But the disciples, they had their own distractions, and they couldn't hear or see either. And maybe their thinking was, well, for Peter, back in chapter 8, he's like, he thought he knew better than Jesus and told him he shouldn't be predicting his death and resurrection. But the disciples... They would ignore what Jesus is saying about his death and resurrection. For James and John, they may have figured out what Jesus was saying because they chose to look for a way to elevate themselves to the right and to the left of the kingdom. What were they thinking? 
Was it pride? Was it ignorance? Was it status? Was it prestige? It could have been a whole host of reasons, but the point is that the disciples missed this message and Jesus and his kingdom and couldn't grasp what was really happening. So let's talk about the last couple weeks as I take a sip. Pastor Staff, a couple weeks, introduced us to the definition of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is trying to convey to the disciples what he's trying to convey to the disciples. And the kingdom of God means the sovereign reign and rule of God is breaking into our world. It is an upside down kingdom where we can't can let go of our own story and create our life around the kingdom of God. It's where we trust the architect, God being the architect, and join in on what God is doing. Pastor Oshis introduced the idea of this paradigm shift. He mentioned how in the first century, it was so common to have this honor and shame culture where status meant everything. It was about climbing that social ladder instead of using our status for own benefit. He, he talked about, he challenged us about using our position to serve others around us as we follow Jesus' example of service and compassion. So in this next section of scripture I want to talk about, Mark 10, Mark literally zooms in on the last conversation as Jesus continues to teach his disciples about following him and what it really means. So let's pick up where we left off. I'm going to read the first five scriptures. It'll be on the screen behind me, or you can use your app, or just listen. Mark 10. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's a lot of nerve. <laughs> what pastoral response? What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Ah, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can. We, we got it, right? <laughs> they answered, Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? As I mentioned before, Jesus was just a little bit more descriptive in chapter 10 of what was going to happen to him. He said he would be handed over to the teachers of the law he would be sentenced to death, he would be mocked, he would be spit upon, he'd be flogged, he would be killed and raised on the third day. So maybe at that point they're like, oh, okay, maybe, maybe something's happened here. So maybe this whole kingdom thing, we left the right, yeah, that was a plan. That, that's what they're thinking. Because Jesus referred to this already, this is the third time. And instead of thinking about what Jesus was going to go through, they are now drawn to power, the allure of power. And that can be appealing to all of us. James and John wanted the highest place, the highest post in this new kingdom that Jesus mentioned. They were really thinking about themselves. They weren't even thinking about Peter, who was a part of that inner circle, a part of the three, the big three. This is what they wanted. They wanted the highest post in the kingdom. They wanted the status of being on the left and the right side, the most prestigious positions next to the throne. They also thought they could handle the cup 
we got this. We can handle the cup. We can handle baptism. Quite a self-confident spirit they had. And Jesus says, but you don't really know what you're asking. Sip. Before my son graduated from high school in 2021, he um, said yes to going to Alaska to do commercial fishing with a family friend. He didn't realize what he signed up for. <laughs> he didn't know what he was saying yes to. This job would challenge him physically. He's 125 pounds wet. Emotionally, mentally, oh my gosh, can I do these steps? Learning new skills. Up 16 to, 20, uh, 16 to 18 hour days. There was one time it was like a 24 hour cycle. He's learning new skills. He almost lost his life because the tide changed, like all of a sudden. He also got docked for pay because he was late for work. Fish don't wait. That was an important lesson he learned. He was isolated from his family and his friends. It was always light out because it was the summer in Alaska. It's always light, so it never really gets dark. That was all new for him. It was very difficult. It was also difficult not looking like anybody else. He wanted to leave within the first few hours, literally. No. <laughs> We're so mean. We said no. He really needed this experience because he knew, we knew as parents, it was going to assist him in his growth as a young man, but he did not know what he was asking. Just like the disciples, he didn't know. I realize that this is kind of a minor comparison to what James and John was asking, but I'm sure many of us have been in situations where we say, yes, we can do this without really knowing what we're saying yes to. Let me tell you what John and James signed up for when Jesus said, can you drink this cup that I drink or the baptism I am baptized with? Because the cup in the Old Testament represented suffering. It was meant to share someone's fate. The cup Jesus had to drink referred to taking on the punishment of, for sin to redeem this world. The cup that Jesus referred to in the Garden of Gethsemane, even Jesus had a moment about that cup. He said to the Father, take this cup from me, not, but not my will, your will be done. It was not the death that Jesus was afraid of. It was the manner in which he was going to die because it was gruesome. The cup that he took before the night he died where he was with his disciples, where he said, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many. The bread represented his body given for us. The cup represents the blood of Jesus poured out. And God's commitment that Jesus' blood was atoning for the sin of the world. The cup meant suffering. Baptism was similar to the cup. In the Old Testament, baptism refers to the deluge of trouble. One commentary notes that the Greek verb baptism means to dip or be submerged and does not always refer to water. 
So a grieving person might be described as being immersed in sorrow. Once again, James and John are thinking one thing, but Jesus knew this cup, what this cup in baptism represented. It represented pain, sacrifice, and death. And essentially, they're asking Jesus to fit into their plans rather than trying to see how they may fit into Jesus' plans. So, James and John, they want the rewards without the cost and the sacrifice. And I think we do that today. Serving Jesus can be too costly because we like our comforts, don't we? And really, who wants to sacrifice or suffer anything? So James and John would find out what this meant to take the cup in baptism. We know that James would eventually be martyred, and John lived a long life, but eventually he understood what the real cost of serving Jesus is. One commentary said, the way to a privileged position in the messianic kingdom is not by grabbing for power, but by relinquishing it through the suffering and death. And relinquishing means to give up our right for power and control and allowing God to lead us and to guide us. So let's look at this scripture in Mark 10. Let's keep reading. But to sit at the first, second part of uh, verse 40. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. This is what Jesus is saying. These places belong to those to whom have been already prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant and James, with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servants. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I'm going to make a few comments just about these scriptures. First of all, it's only the Father who, sits at the, who can say who's going to sit on the right hand and the left side. It is not up to James and John. Jesus wasn't about to usurp the authority of the Father. Jesus is showing his own humility and submission to the Father, which are not always popular Christian virtues today. As you can imagine, the other ten disciples, so they're not happy with James and John because they're trying to get one up on them. Let's think again. Jesus has to rebuke Peter. He had to speak to the ten about their conversation about who is the greatest, which has nothing to do with the death and resurrection. Jesus now has to speak to the two and wanting to sit at the left and the right side, and now he has to take them all on again. But there seemed to be this sense of urgency, and he had to break it down so they could see what the paradox of the kingdom of God looked like and what this paradigm shift would look like. You see, kingdom rules are different than the rules of the world. Amen? Somebody, something. Thank you. All right? 
The rulers of the Roman Empire ruled like brutal tyrants who would lord over their people. But being great was not asserting your rank over someone. Greatness was defined by servanthood. This is the great paradox of the kingdom of God. Even though status and rank were important in this culture, Jesus invited the disciples to a different way of thinking, a different view of the world where greatness was defined by service. And the key to greatness in Jesus' kingdom is marked by service and not service of those who we like or those who look like us but to all. Greatness came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom, which means a release from bondage of sin. Henry Nouwen, great author, was someone who understood what service meant the last 10 years of his life. I learned about this story in a book called the selfless way of Christ. Now, and he was a professor at Yale and Harvard and a well-known writer and speaker. He wrestled with his vocation where God was calling him. He struggled with his need, imagine this, to be seen, to be praised, and to be admired. He was called to be a pastor at a community where, with a uh, Adults with disabilities, intellectual disabilities. And these were adults who didn't know anything about him. They didn't know about his famous books, his reputation as a speaker, or teaching experience at two of the most prestigious Ivy League schools in our country. This was a radical change for him, but he responded with obedience. We all understand what upward mobility means. It's how our lives are structured around gaining more and climbing that ladder of success. But now when introduce a concept called downward mobility. He says the great paradox which scripture reveals is that real and total freedom is only found through downward mobility. This is not to say there's not anything wrong with advancements of ourselves and our community, but when it becomes our religion or our God, Therein lies the problem. And we can't do this on our own. It's only the Holy Spirit that guides us and helps us to see this life of Christ is about serving. I'm going to go to a long quote. So i got to take a sip. It's kind of lengthy. Just stay with me. It's one of Nowen's quote about the Holy Spirit and affirming this, what he says. He says the spiritual life is a life guided by the same spirit who guided Jesus Christ. The spirit is the breath of Christ in us, the divine power of Christ in us, the mysterious source of new vitality by which we are made aware that it is not who live, but Christ who lives in us. It is not enough to imitate Christ as much as possible, it is not enough to remind others of Jesus. It is not enough to be inspired by the words of Jesus and his actions of Jesus. No, the spiritual life presents us with a far more radical demand to be living Christ here and now in time and history. 
What I have received from this passage of scripture is the way of Jesus. There are three things. It's not about having status and greatness. It's about these three. It's about suffering, sacrifice, and service. Now, Jesus is not telling them not to be great, but it's a paradigm shift, and greatness looks like suffering, sacrifice, and service. Let me give you some examples. Suffering for the kingdom may look like rejection when you have to stand up what you feel is right at a job because you will not compromise your belief. Suffering for the kingdom may look like a loss when you thought you deserved that position or that thing that Jesus is trying to take, but Jesus is trying to take you to a new level of trust. Suffering for the kingdom may mean that you may mean we may never be martyred for our faith, but are we willing to be? Sacrifice for the kingdom may look like taking on less, less to be present with family and friends who need you. Sacrifice for the kingdom may look like taking on a role that you had not anticipated. Not. But Jesus has given you the peace and strength to walk in what looks like a storm. Sacrifice for the kingdom may look like saying, I have enough and I want others to have because I don't really need this. Service for the kingdom is maybe about bringing a meal or offering a ride or offering space at your table to a stranger over the holidays or any day. Service for the kingdom is looking for ways to serve others quietly without fanfare or praise. That is what Henry Nouwen did. There are lessons to be learned from suffering, sacrifice, and praise. And I don't think Trevion, my son, would ever say his time in Alaska wasn't weighted wasted. That fish is as big as he is. <laughs> but he learned about all three, a little about all three, a little about suffering, a little about sacrifice, and a little about service while he was there. And the reward for going through this was challenging. It was a very challenging time. And it was more than just the monetary gains that he got. So for us, what does this look like in some questions? For you, for me, what does that look like this week? Continually laying down our lives for the sake of others. It's hard work. It's not easy, but we serve a Savior who gave us an example of this and empowers us to do it. What would sacrifice look like this week with our time, our money, and energy? And what would service look like this week with our spouse or a coworker, a child or a neighbor? If we are truly called to lay down our life for the sake of the kingdom, to take this cup or baptism, that means to lay down our life just as he laid it down for us. I'm going to have the worship team come up. I often oversee communion, and I wanted to offer it during my message today, just as a way of application. Because I want to take this time and use it as a way to just recommit to knowing that the way of Jesus will look like suffering and sacrifice and service.
We make this commitment every week through communion. We make this commitment to take communion. And I think that we can easily take this process for granted. We take the bread, which is Christ's body broken for us. We take the cup, but now we have a new reference every time you drink that cup and what it means. Sometimes it's gonna look like suffering. We should live our lives in constant imitation of Christ, knowing that part of living for Christ may not be easy. James and John wanted the glory and they wanted the power. But the way of Jesus is the way of suffering, sacrifice, and service. Where we give ourselves daily over ourselves, I'm sorry, we give ourselves daily over to Christ who gave up his life for us. We seek the glory of God and not the glory of others around us because we are called to a place ourselves last and Jesus first. So Jesus modeled this service and sacrifice literally from the cradle to the grave. And while in the form of God, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross. That's from Philippians 2. The incarnation and the crucifixion are acts of great service and sacrifice. I'd like the communion service to come up. Each week, whoever uh, leads communion, usually we paraphrase what 1 um, Corinthians talks about. But I literally want to read it today. Because this is, not, um, this is not a time of just, you know, this is something we do every week. I want us to think about what that cup and that baptism really means. It says in 1 Corinthians 11, 23-28, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given things, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink. Whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord is in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. This is a part of the message. This is the application to really examine ourselves and ask God, what does it look like for me to suffer, to sacrifice, to serve? When you're ready to take communion, you can come down the center aisles and bring it back to your seat. If it would be a service to you, 
there'll be someone that can serve you communion in your seat also. It's gluten-free so everyone can have it. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are more than welcome to take communion with us today. If you are seeking after Jesus, you are welcome to take communion today. The prayer team is always going to be available to pray with you. And the worship team will continue to lead us in worship as we close our service out.